everyone in this room tonight. I just pray that this sermon will speak to everyone, that we can open our minds to you, God. I just thank you for all that you've blessed us and given us. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Kids, you can be dismissed to Kids Church. Everybody else, you can... You already had a seat. I didn't tell you you could sit down yet. <laughs> I'm going to scoot this back. What a beautiful, powerful, wonderful name. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's the theme tonight. I want to welcome everybody who's here in person, everybody who's listening online. Uh, my name is Brian Colbertson. I am the teaching pastor here at Refuge. And from now until Easter, we are walking through the Gospel of Luke, and we're learning about that beautiful name, Jesus, as Jesus becomes our Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Last week, we looked at the baptism of Jesus. And at his baptism, we remember the, the voice from heaven, his father, the voice from heaven, he spoke one time. He said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. That was the voice of heaven. He spoke one time. But the voice of hell, he speaks too. Not once, not twice, but like the energizer bunny, he just keeps going and going and going in Jesus' life and in our life. And so if you hear nothing else I say tonight, I'm going to get the most important topic right out of the way from the very beginning. Becoming a Christian, being baptized, putting your hope in Jesus, it's not the end of the battle. The battle will continue to rage on. Your baptism, your coming to Christ, that's just the start of a new battle with a new enemy. See, Christianity is this odd dichotomy. The more that God pours peace into your life, the more conflict Satan will try to create in your mind. The more you experience joy as a Christian, the more Satan will try to rob you of that joy with lies and deception. And so if you think, whew, put my trust in Jesus, got baptized, I'm in the club, it's going to be all rainbows and sunshine from here on out, that's a lie, and it's a lie that's propagated by the father of lies. John chapter 8, verse 44 says, He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's native tongue is deceit. And so Jesus was attacked by Satan's lies. Not once, not twice, but over and over and over. So why should we expect any different in our own lives? And so we're going to pick up tonight in Luke chapter 4. Uh, my teaching style is, if you're new here, is I read the Bible, we read it together as a church, and as we're reading through it, I'll stop when there's points to stop, and I'll expound on, on particular areas of interest. And so we're going to go through Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It begins, then... And I, that's a good place to stop. I'll stop right there. That's, that's a big word. Anytime you see the word then in the Bible, it means something just happened previously. What just happened? Well, it's what we looked at last week. Jesus is baptized. And it says, then immediately after his baptism, here's what played out next. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. 
you remember at the baptism, Jesus got the Spirit. The dove came down, it lands on him. And so what's the Holy Spirit going to do? You know, he's going to, what's he going to go? He's going to send him off to save the world. He's going to send him off to do some great miracles. No, the Spirit leads him right up out of the thirst-quenching water into the thirst-creating desert. What's a desert? It's dry, it's barren, it's isolated. Some of you know what that place feels like in your life. And in that place, that dry, barren place, it's a great place for spiritual and emotional attack. So that being the case, why does God's Spirit leave God's Son into the wilderness? Well, perhaps it's for some rest. Jesus has been through a lot, just got baptized, and solitude is good. Isolation is not, but solitude occasionally in life is good. Perhaps the Spirit leads him there to think about the events of the baptism, to digest just all that happened, God speaking, the dove coming down. And all of that may be true, but Scripture says he was led by the Spirit, verse 2, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. The Spirit is omniscient. That means the Spirit is all-knowing. And so God, the Spirit, knew exactly what awaited Jesus in that desolate place, and yet he led him there anyway. And before you start thinking, well, that's an awful crappy thing for a God to do, I'll give you a couple of things to think about. Number one is that Jesus wasn't led into that temptation until he was prepared and ready to overcome it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. From age 12 through 30, if you remember back to Jesus in the temple at 12 years old, after that story, it said he grew in stature and wisdom. And so Jesus has had a period of growth in his life. At Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit's power descends upon Jesus. And so we know Jesus never sinned, and he never would have sinned. But could he have overcome these temptations that are about to come that we're going to see tonight when he was 10 years old? I don't know. Could he have overcome these temptations without the power of the Spirit or hearing God speak into his life? I don't know, but at this moment, now he is prepared. Number two, the second thing I want you to see in this story is who is in control. Is Satan in control with these temptations, or is God? Satan is allowed to test Jesus, but Satan wasn't allowed to lead Jesus. Only God leads Jesus. There's a very important distinction between those two. And so Jesus is baptized, and instead of launching into his ministry, which would have been perfect timing, right? I mean, he just got baptized. The people heard God's voice. They're like, well, that was pretty impressive. The dove descends down. They're like, that's pretty impressive. It's been a great time to start a ministry right there after this big, spectacular thing. But the Spirit of God leads Jesus to a place with no people to be tempted by Satan all alone. Why does he do that? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, It was necessary for Jesus to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then, there's that word, he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. It's the gospel. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Scott, the guy that you saw do the announcements up here, spends a little bit of time in the gym, if you can't tell. He's got a guy there spotting him in that picture. 
Scott, if you came to the gym and, and spotted me and I tried to lift that weight like you are right there, what, what would you, you would tell me not to do that, right? You'd be like, Brian, that's a bad idea. You can barely deadlift a can of Campbell's soup. That, that is probably going to be too heavy for you. See, the guy who's lifting the weight and the guy who can lift the weight and the guy who has already lifted that weight knows how truly heavy the weight is. I don't know, that's like what, you say 400 pounds or something? 405. I don't know what 405 pounds feels like on my back because I've never put 405 on my back. Scott Morrison told me this week he does a 485 deadlift. That's your PR, right? So if I were to step up and try to lift 485, my arms would come out of their sockets. And hopefully Scott would tell me to stop because I can't handle that weight. I have no idea how much 485 pounds Ways and based on the look on Scott's face, it weighs a lot. <laughs> Jesus was tempted in every way that we are tempted. That means he lifted the full weight. He knows the heaviness of temptation. And so when you're tempted, don't believe the lie that comes from Satan that now, Jesus just doesn't understand what I'm, I'm going through. Jesus can't relate. Jesus has never been there. My circumstances are unique. I can't talk to Jesus about what I'm going through. He'll never understand. It's so embarrassing. Jesus has been tempted. It means he's been there. He's felt it. He's lifted it. And now he's available to spot you and guide you and help you. And so Luke is going to give us three temptations that Satan gives to Jesus. But this is just a small sampling. Jesus, it says, was tempted for 40 days, not just like three at the very end of 40 days. And so the temptation was constant. The temptation was relentless. 40 days. Is there any significant to the 40 days? Well, there probably is. Moses was up on the mountain and fasted for 40 days. Elijah spent 40 days in the wilderness. Noah's flood lasted 40 days and nights. So there's probably some, some similarities there. But most commentators say that this is an echo of Israel. If you remember Israel, they come out of Egypt up through the waters by the parting of the Red Sea. God declares Israel to be his children, his son, and then after that, Israel goes and spends 40 years, not days, wandering through the wilderness where they hungered for bread, but they submitted to their temptations. Jesus has just came out of the water of baptism. He just heard God declare him his son, and now he's been led to the wilderness to face hunger and temptations. But the story will go differently. It says, Jesus, this is what Luke says, ate nothing at all that time and became very hungry. Thank you, Captain Obvious. But that's an important statement because Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And so the man part of Jesus felt pain. He had a sense of humor. He needed some sleep. And so if Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days, he was starving, literally. My family used to be fans of Naked and Afraid. It's the same thing over and over, so we don't watch it anymore now. But it's basically two people, a guy and a girl, they take off their clothes. They go live out in the wilderness for 21 days with no food, no survival stuff, and so on and so forth. And they go 21 days, and if you can't make it 21 days, you tap out. And most of them can't usually find food, so they just starve for 21 days, and you see their body get depleted. Jesus goes not 21 days. He goes 40 days without food. 
I just did a little quick Google search. Eight to 10 hours after you stop eating, the body starts functioning differently. Your glucose is depleted. There's a lack of energy. So, you know, you're, you're hangry after eight hours or so. After three days with no food, the metabolism starts to change. The body starts converting muscle into glucose, into energy. And as time goes along, there's dizziness, there's faintness, there's weakness. Depression can come from hunger. Body temperature starts to fluctuate up and down. It's like fever and chills when you're starving. You start to swell up even though you're losing weight, and eventually your organs start to fail. Forty days into this fast, he's hungry, he's tired, he's isolated, he's been pushed to the limits. What a perfect time for the king of lies to start his work. And so it says in verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, where have we heard those words before? That was the baptism, right? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Satan uses those words very precisely, and he adds an if. With if, there's this undertone of doubt. If you really are the son of God, I mean, are, are you sure? Did you just imagine all that? If you're God's son, why are you here suffering like this? does the same thing in our life. You've, you've had depression for a decade now. If God really loved you, wouldn't he take that away? After years of hard work, man, you've got your finances in order, your house is paid off. Now this happens. If God really has your best interests at heart, why is this happening now? If the church really is the family of God, why did they go through a witch hunt and try to destroy your reputation? If you've been saved why do you still have so much doubt? I mean, it's a brilliant tactic to get us to question God, to get us to question our identity as his children. And that tactic goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. In fact, right before this story we're reading right now, there's a genealogy of Jesus, if you read through it, and it starts at Joseph, and it works all the way back to Adam. And it's to point us and to remind us where Jesus came from, from the seed. And it says, uh, he said to Adam and Eve, if everything God made is good... Then why'd he say you can't eat the fruit? What's God trying to hide from you? Satan knows his strategy. He knows how we live lives and how they come from our identity. For instance, if you think you're a victim, you'll probably live life like a victim with a victim mentality. If you think you're a screw-up, you'll continue to live life based on that identity as a screw-up. And if you think you're a good person, if that's your identity, you'll look down on those you consider less good than you are. But see, as Christians, our identity rests in knowing that we are children of God with whom God is well pleased, and it's an identity we can't lose. It's an identity that transforms then our lives, and there is tremendous power in taking hold of that identity. And so Satan wants to keep us away from that identity and its power. And so he says to Jesus, if you really are the Son of God... Tell that stone to become a loaf of bread. Now, would it be wrong for Jesus to turn a stone into a loaf of bread? Think about that. I mean, he's turned water into wine. People can get drunk on wine. Bread is a lot less dangerous. There's just carbs. So I think that it would be a safe bet. He's hungry. He's in pain. He has no energy. He feels like death. As God in the flesh, I'd imagine this would be a pretty simple miracle. For Jesus, though, to use him power on himself was never a part of God's plan. He always uses his power for others. 
And so to turn a stone to bread for himself would be obeying Satan and disobeying God, which is sin. And so Jesus was tempted. I don't know if you've processed that or not, but Jesus being tempted means that he considered the idea. I mean, we all envision this story. If you've been in church any length of time, you envision this story as, as Jesus is there. He's been fasting for 40 days. He's skinny. He's, he's hungry. He's tired. And Satan is just like walking around with his wings and devil halo and all that stuff. And, and I don't think that's what is actually happening in the story. Because in our lives, I know for me, the devil's voice is always just a string of ideas that just runs through my head. These ideas that can seem attractive. These ideas that I begin to play out and they start to seem plausible. These ideas that just keep rattling around in my head over and over. God can't, can't want his son starving like this, could he? I mean, what would it hurt if I turned that rock into a bread? It's not hurting anyone. Maybe, maybe God put that rock there so I could practice my miracles in public, just or without being in public, just in case I don't have them quite down yet, and I turn that rock into a dog or something instead of bread. It's an important theological concept. Temptation is not the same as sin. In fact, a lie that Satan will use against you will be this. Well, you've been tempted. You thought about it, so you've already lost. So you might as well screw it and go all the way. But that's not true. We're told that Jesus was tempted. That means on some level, he thought about the idea. He entertained the idea, but he never yielded to those thoughts because we know that Jesus never sinned. Give you an illustration. I was at the grocery store this week. That's a place with a lot of temptations, right? So I'm at the grocery store picking up dinner for the family, and, you know, you're there. You always pick up a few things that aren't for dinner for the family. And so I put the white cheddar organic Cheetos into my shopping cart because that's my favorite. I got to the next aisle. I took them out. But I got to another aisle, and they had them at the end cap, so I put them back in my cart. But I got to the produce section, and I took them back out, not where they were supposed to be, but they're sitting with the apples and oranges, but I left them there. Didn't buy them. In the checkout line, they got a small bag of these organic cheddar Cheetos. I picked them up, didn't even put them in my cart. I sit them back down. I was tempted. I considered it, but I didn't buy them. At this moment, I have no white cheddar organic Cheetos in my home. I never put them into my body. Temptation is the same. It's not bringing sin into the body. It's not acting upon the sin. And so how is Jesus going to deal with these lies that Satan is speaking to him? It says Jesus told him, no, not going to do it. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Jesus doesn't argue with Satan. He quotes scripture. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. After 40 days of fasting in the wilderness... If all of human history hinged on your capacity to quote Deuteronomy, how well would that go? I think for most of us, not very well. That's why this, this gathering together every week and studying scripture 
is important to put those words into our minds. That's why the ladies' Bible study and other groups is, is important. That's why worship music is important, whether you're listening to it in a car or, or wherever. It's to keep that truth from Scripture just on your heart constantly, day in and day out. That's why I encourage you every day, spend some time somehow into God's Word. Whether that's a podcast or whether that's, that's reading the Bible, a devotional, just spend a little bit of time somewhere in your day in God's Word. Your temptations, your trials, your struggles, your doubts, don't argue with them. Quote scripture to them. And so if you're going through depression and you're going through doubt, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Speak that to your depression. Speak that to your doubt. If you deal with guilt and shame, may my favor, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a workaholic like me and that's your temptation to just spend too much time and work, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? You can even get it tattooed on your arm if you can't remember it like I did because I need that reminder every single minute of my life. If you spend any time at this church and you stick around, you're going to hear me say this over and over and over. You need to be in God's word. You need to hear the gospel. You need to hear it preached from others. You need to preach it to yourself. If Jesus was saturated in God's word and that's how he combated Satan, how could we do any less? Verse 5 says, then. There's that word again. Then. Satan's not like, oh, snap. He quoted Deuteronomy. I, I surrender. I give up. It says, then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you, this is Satan speaking, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them because they are mine to give anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you worship me. See, the temptation here for Jesus is a shortcut that Satan is offering. He's saying, Jesus, you don't, you don't need to be abandoned. You don't need to be betrayed. You don't need to be arrested and murdered and buried. Just worship me and I'll give you a crown without having to go to the cross. But is that Satan's to give? It is. John chapter 12, verse 31 says that Satan is the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4 4 says he is the God, little g, of this world. I'll give you another illustration. Satan's first attempt at Jesus here didn't work. But Satan is still tempting, he's still fishing, he's trying out different baits to see what Jesus will bite on. Now, I'm a fisherman. I'm not a very good one, but I know a little bit. I grew up fishing, and up in Indiana, we would go up to the pond. When you went to the pond, there were bluegill, and you would put a worm on a hook, cane pole, drop it in. The bluegill would bite. You could even put a little bread ball on it, and sometimes they would bite on that. Bluegill like worm. If you come down here, and you're fishing for grouper offshore, and you drop down an earthworm, it's not going to work. Now, a shrimp, if you drop it down offshore here, every fish in southwest Florida loves to eat shrimp. You took that shrimp and tried to feed it to a bluegill, they'd have no interest in it. Satan has been tempting humans for 10,000 years, which means he's gotten really good at baiting the hook, really good at knowing that we don't all bite the same bait. For some, it's status that we're going to bite on. That's what you want. That's, that's the bait you want. For some of you, you could care less about status. What you want is security. So that's the bait Satan will drop down. For some of you, it's achievement. You're trying to achieve things. Others could care less. It's pleasure. 
Greed, lust, gluttony, anger, laziness, envy, pride, gossip, apathy, self-righteousness. Satan has a huge tackle box. Satan doesn't come at you and say, I'd like you to experience divorce. He doesn't come at you and say, I'd like you to take a bite on this addiction. It's much more clever. It's much more crafty. So he drops down a little squid. You don't bite on it. Hmm, must have been the wrong bait. Let me drop down a, drop down a pinfish. Still no bite. Hmm, what if I hide the hook a little bit better this time? What if I present my bait and make it look a little bit more natural? See, the bait that Satan drops down, it's usually not a bad thing. It's like we go fishing. The, the bait is what the fish eat. That's what we're dropping down. It's the hook that's inside the bait. And it's the person waiting on the other end of the fishing rod waiting to reel you in. Owning a Lexus is not a sin. But if relentless pursuit of said Lexus causes you to make an idol out of your work, it can be a bait that leads you to sin. If you find your identity on the emblem on the front of your car instead of your identity in Christ, it's certainly leading you down the wrong path. Maybe owning a Lexus, though, isn't the bait that works for you. So you're like, money means nothing to me. Symbols are, are stupid. I don't need any of that. I drive my 30-year-old Ford Fiesta, and I'm happy with that. Satan's like, okay, doesn't work for you. Let's, let's try some different bait. Let me, let me drop down some, some politics and see if they bite on that. Now, being interested in politics isn't a sin, but it can make some really good bait. Read this this week. Public Religion Research Institute, whoever they are, they said this. Americans are likely to be more unhappy if their kids marry someone from a different political party than if they marry someone outside their faith. Let that sink in for a moment. For the last few decades, politics, for some, has become a replacement savior. And as Satan uses politics try to reel in some Christians, the Great Commission gets sidelined. Our rhetoric in politics starts to drown out the gospel. And a lot of us are losing our peace and our joy and our love for others. You're not the first fish for Satan that has tried to catch in sin. He's good. He's got experience. And so he knows that young, immature fish tend to be a little bit easier to catch. They'll bite on anything. We were offshore this week. All we caught was little immature fish, no big ones. Satan also knows that big fish, even though they're a little more challenging the catch, they're worth the extra effort because when you get one of them in the boat, now you've done something. He knows that you need to sometimes chum the water. And when you do that, you put a lot of just bait and stuff down in the water, and it can create this feeding frenzy where actually the fish will start to encourage each other to bite the bait. He knows we'll watch our friends take the bait, have their lives destroyed, and we kick back and think, well, I'm a smart fish. I can take the bait but avoid the hook. He knows that fish are a lot easier to catch in water that's a little murky, that's, that's mucked up a little bit because it's harder to see the hook. It's harder to see the line. And so he'll muddy up the water with a little bit of doubt and a little bit of distraction and a bunch of disruptions he knows that some of us are starving ourselves because we're not feeding on the word. We're not feeding on God. We're not tasting and seeing the goodness of God. And we're so hungry right now that we would bite on anything that looks like a good substitute for God. And once we take the bait, 
He'll reel you away from your marriage or your family. He'll reel you away from whatever ministry or church family you're involved in. He might reel you away from being able to love others as your time gets consumed, trying to now get yourself off the hook that you've gotten yourself on. So with the right bait and some hungry fish and some mucked up water, even an amateur like me can catch a few fish. And this is what Satan thinks he can do to Jesus, that he can lure him away from God and over to team Satan. Satan never asked Jesus to become an atheist. He just says, put me above your father. Put me ahead of God. And so Jesus replies, the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. God has been speaking to Jesus his entire life. Just like he speaks to us, he's been speaking to Jesus, not with that loud voice that we saw at Jesus' baptism. He's been speaking to Jesus through his word. Jesus knows his word. And he knows when we put anything on the throne of our hearts, Satan knows this, that if we put anything on the throne of our hearts that is ahead of God, we worship the created and not the creator. We'll worship him and not God. And so food and drink and intimacy and rest, those are all gifts from God. But if we take them and we place them above God, ahead of God, they become gluttony, they become addiction, they become perversion, they become the worship of comfort and pleasure. Two strikes, though. Satan's tried two baits, struck out both times. He's got one more, though, he's going to drop down and try. It says, verse 9, Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, again, if you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, oh, he's going to turn it around on Jesus now. He will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Satan is quoting scripture. And again, just what's the temptation here for Jesus? This would have gotten Jesus a huge following. It would have proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was God's son, and that was not a part of God's plan. Faith is a part of God's plan uh, for Jesus to go um, through the, to the cross and through suffering. And so that's the temptation. But again, I believe these are voices in Jesus' head, and he's trying to digest what's happening. He's trying to figure out who he is. I believe Jesus here is experiencing a little bit of doubt, just like we do. I believe Jesus is trying to logistically work through how this is all going to work and look. And so as Jesus works through that, Satan begins to plant a little scripture into his head and begin to use that as the bait itself. It looks like, it smells like God's word. But it's a twisted, artificial lure. This is a tactic Satan has used for a millennium. Take a verse from God's word, remove it from its context, and then use it to serve your existing beliefs or your purposes. I'm watching Ken Burns' Civil War documentary, it's, I think, 25 or 30 years old now. It was done in the 90s, but Black History Month is coming up next month, and, and just kind of fascinated by that war and, and that part of time in our country. And as I'm watching that, I'm on the second or third episode now, I was reminded, again, just what a tremendous stain slavery is, not just upon our country, but a stain upon the American church. Out of more than 750,000 words in the Bible, Christian slaveholders and their supporters hand-selected a few favorite verses to support their views. And so they would go to Abraham, Abraham and all the patriarchs in Genesis, and they're like, they had slaves. See, it's in the Bible. 
And they would go to Canaan, that's Ham's son. And remember, he saw drunk Noah, and, and then he was made a slave by his brothers. Look, slaves right there in the Bible. It's, it's there. And then they would say, you know, when Jesus was on the earth, slavery was widespread in the Roman Empire, and Jesus never spoke out against slavery. And then they had their favorite, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. And they would bang the pulpit, and they'd say, the Bible clearly states, slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep fear and respect. Even uh, famous Presbyterian preacher James Thornwell at the time says, those who support abolition are atheists, socialists, communists, and red republicans. Frederick Douglass, though, on the other side, African-American man, brilliant guy, he says, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. He goes on and says, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. It's a strong statement. It was a needed statement, though, at that time. The country eventually moved on. The Bible is a powerful thing. And the king of lies, Satan, he knows this. He's used it to bait the hook for slavery, for the Holocaust, for the Crusades. He uses it against us when we're pointing out the speck in our neighbor's eye while ignoring the planks in our own eyes. And so I often wonder, who is suffering today? What people group is suffering today? Because we found a few select verses in the Bible to exclude them from God's family. I wonder what sins in our lives we continue because Scripture doesn't specifically speak against them. I mean, Jesus never talked about trolling on Facebook. Must mean it's okay. <laughs> wonder how many think, well, Jesus is obviously a Republican. It's right there in the Bible. Jesus is obviously a Democrat. It's right there in the Bible. Satan can and will use God's word against us. He knows it better than we do. Verse 12, Jesus responds, the scriptures also say, so Jesus is saying, Satan, you know a few verses, but I know the Bible. You must not test the Lord your God. There's a story later on in Luke that we may look at. It's when Jesus heals this lady on the Sabbath day. She's crippled. She can't stand up. I think she got a bad back, herniated discs or something. I can relate with her. And Jesus touches her, and she's magically healed. It's a miracle. And religious leaders, though, are like, uh-oh, you worked on the Sabbath. Scriptures clearly state that we must rest and not work on the Sabbath. And Jesus responds, you hypocrites. This woman has suffered for 18 years. Isn't it also biblical that she be released from her pain regardless of a day on a calendar? We need to be in God's word. We need to know the big story of God's word. We need to look at not just the verse, but the verse in its context and the verse in its culture. 
We must, of all, we need to allow God's word to shape our lives and not twist God's word to fit the life that we already have. Verse 13 says, when the devil, devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Satan admitted defeat. Three strikes and I'm out. I'm never going to tempt Jesus again. It's not what happens. He waited, it says, for the next opportunity. And he comes back again and again. As I read that this week and I'm writing out my sermon, stopped and I prayed for my friends who are in recovery. Because you know that ebb and flow of temptation. Where sometimes in your life you're in that season of peace and life is going well. you got a little momentum building and, and that temptation just seems to go away for a while. And then there's other times where the temptation is so strong. It feels like Satan is dropping bait after bait after bait in front of you. But that's really all of us. Turning to God, becoming a Christian, going through baptism, it's not the end of our battles with temptation. It's the start of a new and greater war with evil. And so whatever the bait is that you're attracted to, Satan will keep dropping in front of you. He'll keep reinventing that bait. He'll find new baits that you've never tasted before, but all of a sudden now you can't resist. He'll toss out some shiny, sparkly, artificial lures. He'll muck up the water. He'll chum the water, and you'll bite. We all bite at some point in time. And some have heard that lie from Satan, I got you. You took the bait. The hook is set. It's in there good. Give up. Satan is a liar. Don't listen. If you've gotten hooked, escape is always possible. And you can trust me on this. I've hooked a lot of fish that I have not gotten up to the boat. Escape is always possible. And the way we escape is repentance. Admitting I took the bait. I got hooked. I can't get off of this hook. I need someone from outside this situation to come in and to release me, to set me free. And we know that that someone is the beautiful, wonderful, powerful name of Jesus, the one who makes the darkness tremble, the one who can silence the lies of Satan, the one who can set us free. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this night together. God, tonight we thank you for your word, just the power that it has. God, I pray that we become a church that is passionate about being in your word, is passionate about meditating upon your word, of placing that word on your heart so that when those temptations come, we don't battle them with willpower. We don't battle them by arguing with them. We battle them with truth, with our identity of being your son, with our identity of being your daughter. That will never go away. No matter how many times we bite the bait, no matter how many times we are hooked, that will always be our identity. God, so we thank you for the grace and mercy of the cross that allows that. In Jesus' name, amen.
Hey, just real quick, I want to mention the baptism event again. I think, I don't remember the date. I think it was March 10th. It's a Saturday morning, though, and, and the date will be up on our calendar. Um, but if that is something that you would like to do, we had two people last week come up after the service. Um, one had told me beforehand, one after the service, that would like to be baptized on that day, but we got plenty of room in the pool. We'll do brunch and music and some scripture, and, and we'd love to have everybody there, those who are being baptized and those who just want to celebrate and applaud those who have taken that public profession of their faith. This week, don't listen to the lies. You're going to hear a lot of them, that voice in our head that never stops talking. I think, I think Satan is an extrovert because he just never shuts up. Don't take the bait. Don't listen to the lies. Keep focused on that beautiful, wonderful, powerful name. God bless. Love you all. See you next week. Call these bones to live Call these lungs to sing